I'm Catherine Mazone here on behalf of Mojo Streaming, extremely proud to welcome Ian Redman. He's a conservationist biologist, been at it for 40 years now, would you say, Ian? And a bit. <laughs> a little bit longer? Yeah. Well, currently, I know that you're the chairman of Ape Alliance, which is a coalition of individuals and organizations around the world that are working for conservation and welfare of great apes. You're also uh, very knowledgeable about elephants. You've done a lot of work with elephants. Um, I, I guess my first question is, what got you into wildlife? Have you always been a wildlife lover or were you drawn because of a certain cause or instance? Uh, I, I, in a nutshell, I describe myself as a, a naturalist by birth. So I think naturalists are just people who are innately fascinated with, with all living things. And um, most children are like that, but they sort of grow out of it or, or it's beaten out of them, one or the other. <laughs> And they get proper jobs and and, uh, and become members of their community. Uh, so a naturalist by birth, uh, a biologist by training, um, because if you want a career in, in natural history, biology is a, an obvious choice, um, and a conservationist by necessity. Uh, and in fact, I sometimes uh, describe myself as a reluctant conservationist. I, I don't want to be a conservationist, but it's necessary. And if we can just get things right, I can go back to being possibly not even a biologist, just a naturalist, just appreciating nature um, for itself. Um, so that's that's the, the goal, to not be a conservationist because it won't be necessary. And we'll have created a, a, a safe world for all the other creatures that, that we share the planet with. And, and then we can just in, enjoy studying them and, and understanding them better and, and delighting in them. Absolutely. Out of curiosity, do you think that's an attainable goal? Absolutely. Because <laughs> we do need everyone on side. And that's why it's, it's lovely to be talking to your audience, although I suspect if they've signed up to Mojo Streaming, they're already on side a little. So we need to, we need to get a, a podcast onto, onto petrol heads. And, and you know, um, I, I did once do a, a, a podcast with a, a boxing um, um, program, um, wow. mainly because they wanted to know whether I thought... Um, Mike Tyson and a silverback gorilla, um, if they were to fight, who oh. would walk? So that was a really serious discussion. Absolutely. <laughs> but I'm but sure the nice maybe. thing was that that um, I'm told many thousands of people who are interested in boxing and not particularly interested in natural history got to learn a bit about gorillas and why they're so important. So um, I should probably not be talking to you. I should be talking to all kinds of other interest groups to say, actually, this should interest you too, because we are all in this together and there, there's no there's no they, there's only we. Mm -hmm. and, and that's very much the case with conservation and, and um, protecting species. It's not they should do something, it's very much we should do something. Absolutely. So how would you say that uh, conservation, conservationism has, has evolved over the years that you've been active? Well, to be fair, it has become more mainstream, more central to the general population's thinking. And at least on the face of it, it seems to be more on the, the minds and the lips of politicians and corporate leaders and, and people who we look up to in our society because they're in a leadership role, um, but most of whom probably don't have 
a background in science and, and if they do probably not in natural sciences so one, one of my big frustrations in life is that that you know you go to these big UN gatherings where civil servants from every country on the planet are discussing policies that will shape the way we interact with nature and there's a big one going on at the moment building up to what should have happened two years ago uh, this is CBD COP15 in UN speak. Uh, let me translate that for, for the non-UN speakers. The CBD is the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity. Mm. Biological diversity is, is all life on Earth, what we used to call the web of life, you know, or nature. One, one word summary, it's about nature. And every country has signed the Convention on Biodiversity, almost every country has signed the Convention on Biodiversity. And, and as a UN meeting, it's not telling countries what to do, it's, it's countries agreeing what to do collectively. And usually by consensus, occasionally it goes to a vote and some countries say, no, I just can't go with that. So I'm gonna abstain from that particular, take a reservation and not do what that agreement is. But, but UN, UN conventions um, are, are like the Ape Alliance is an alliance of NGOs that agree to a common purpose each convention has its issue and each convention is governed the highest sort of level of, of um, decision making is the conference of the parties because the parties are all the countries that have signed up so if, if whoever wherever you are in the world watching this if your government has signed a convention on your behalf they are agreeing to do things which in the case of the cbd is to ensure that biodiversity the whole variety of life on earth uh, survives and, and thrives, in fact, and that people who are utilizing it do so fairly, and that there's an equitable distribution of whatever benefits come from it. So that's what the CBD is about. And, and in 2020, the intention was to have the 15th conference of the parties, COP15, uh, in, to be hosted by China in Kunming, uh, but then the pandemic hit, and it was postponed, then it was postponed again. And, and it's supposed to be happening later this year, but when you go to the website, it's still saying dates to be confirmed. Hmm. But the purpose of that gathering is to take the decision on, on what, again, in, in UN speak is called the post-2020 global biodiversity framework, which is a framework of, of policy guidance so that all those countries taking decisions about how they manage their uh, the habitats in their land um, do so in a coordinated way and, and we have a half decent chance of preventing biodiversity loss or at least slowing it down and, and preventing ecosystem collapse which will be catastrophic for us and so yes pe people who are, have heard of COPs are probably wondering why I'm not talking about COP26 which was last year in Glasgow and the forthcoming COP27 well, that's a different series of COPs. Uh, that's the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Okay, so the UNFCCC uh, was considered so important that they didn't have their annual, their, their meetings, their conferences of the parties every two or three years like other conventions, every year. Mm. That's why, you know, the, the biodiversity one is up to COP15, but already the climate talks are up to COP27 coming up in Egypt um, later this year. And each of these COPs is where um, theoretically everyone on the planet has a voice, but of course you can't all speak at once. So representatives from each government, and that tends to be 
civil servants, many of whom have a long and distinguished career in the civil service, but aren't necessarily scientists. And so they're advised by scientists, um, some of whom might be funded by the vested interests that really don't want more regulation, don't want more protection of nature because their shareholders and their investors want a decent return on their investment. And they do that by logging or by mining or by pumping oil or whatever it is that they're doing in the world. So you have a really complicated situation where on the face of it with the best will in the world, everyone is on the same page trying to make our use of the planet sustainable so that our children and grandchildren will live in a healthy environment. But there are all these economic pressures and political pressures and, and human stuff. And humans, as you know, are really complicated and uh, will always look for what's probably going to be best for them or their family or their community or their country. And you see really clear examples sometimes when a country is blocking a decision because it's going to be bad for that country in economic terms, um, in short term economic terms. It's usually what we're talking about. Whereas the rest of the world is thinking, well, no, for the planet, this is a much better decision. And it, it, gets, it gets tricky. And then, then you get the, um, the, the conversations in the corridors and in the side rooms and the coffee bars where, well, look, we'll support your proposal to do this if you support our proposal to do that. And, and that kind of horse trading, as it's known, um, goes on. And it's the, the fate of ecosystems and species and communities that are being decided in this way. Um, but it's it's the best way we've come up with, I think. <laughs> so you have to, as the saying goes, you have to row with the oars you've got. And, and the UN conventions are a way of, of basically restraining ourselves. I think humans as a species are spectacularly bad at self-restraint. You know, <laughs> we get an idea, we run with it. Whoa, this is great. And, and whatever it is, um, we don't necessarily stop, think, okay, if we keep doing this, what's gonna happen down the line? What will be the consequences for us, for our neighbors, for our children? Um, we're focused on the, the here and now and the, the immediate gratification or pleasure that we can get. And, and that's, that's a whole complicated stuff, which has nothing to do with being a naturalist. But <laughs> as I say, a reluctant conservationist, you have to be with all that stuff so that the, the fascinating species and habitats that I'd, I'd love to be just studying and filming and sharing with the world um, have a half decent chance of surviving into the future. And, and in doing so, helping us, the human species, survive into the future and, and i would always say actually we, we want to do more than survive we want to thrive and that's that's the goal devise policies and see them implemented in a way that everyone agrees is going to be good for the future of us and our children and and that's um what i spend my time trying to do and, yeah. and working with lots of other people around the world who share that that vision and uh, as well as we're having this conversation across the Atlantic, it's in some ways much easier today to do that. Yes. And yet the production of some of the technology that allows us to do this is the very thing that's threatening some of the species that we care about and are talking about on these platforms. How Take so? <laughs> well, um, I don't know what your viewers use to watch this, but if it's a laptop or a, a 
tablet or a mobile phone, uh, the chances are operating within the electronics are things called tantalum capacitors, which have the ability to store a charge and then release it when it's needed without getting too hot. Uh, tantalum is a heavy metal. And I quite like heavy metal, both the music <laughs> and, the, and the chemicals that fall into that category. Um, when you have a lump of tantalum in your hand, you think it, it's a pebble. When you pick up a pebble, you have a, an idea from previous pebbles what, what it's going to feel like. And then you think, whoa, this is heavy. This is heavier than lead. And people think lead is heavy when they have a lump of it in their hand. So tantalum is a, a heavy metal. It has this peculiar property that when ground into a powder and, and a capacitor is coated, um, the capacitor works without getting too hot. And, and that enables us to have these ridiculously thin mobile phones. I mean, look at that. Uh, a few years ago, people were holding bricks to their right. head. They thought they were really cool because they had a brick that could talk to another brick without wires. Uh, and, and they're getting smaller and smaller. And, and the reason that one of the ways in which that's able to happen is because of tantalum capacitors. And where is a large proportion of the Earth's tantalum found? Under the soils of the Democratic Republic of Congo the DRC, which used to be called Zaire. So people who did geography um, 20 years ago would, would know of it uh, as, as Zaire, but uh, since actually since 97, so 25 years, um, it's been called the Democratic Republic of Congo. And around the turn of the millennium, um, there was like a gold rush, but not for gold, for tantalum, because um, there was a boom in the, the demand for uh, games consoles, and, and smaller and smaller electronic devices like laptops and phones that use these tantalum capacitors. They also use a lot of tin in soldering the electronics together. And, and most people don't go under the bonnet of their, uh, or under the hood, I should say, for the North American viewers, of their um, laptops or, or devices. It's just a mystery. It's a, it's a thin little thing. And, and yet I can talk to anyone on the planet with this who's got another little thing. It's, so it's, it's, it's extraordinary how, we were such a, a loquacious species. We like to talk and talk and talk as I'm demonstrating. Um, and so a device that enables you to talk to anyone anywhere on the planet is, is just amazing. But to get the tantalum out the ground, it, it's beginning to get better, but for a long time, certainly since the, the turn of the, the, the millennium, um, the system of mining was very informal. And so basically anyone who, who found that there were heavy rocks on their land or in the land that didn't belong to them, but, but that they could access, might be a national park, it might be a community forest. If these crazy foreigners are going to give you briefcases full of do dollars for the heavy pebbles, well, I, I mean, if, if, if you're a gardener and you, you're out in the garden and, and you know that someone will buy a certain kind of stone as you're digging your vegetables, you're probably going to put those stones on one side and you might get carried away and think, oh, I'm going to dig a big hole and see how many of those stones. Are. And eventually you've got what's commonly known as a mine. But if you're a rural community in, in Central Africa with no knowledge of mining methods, what tends to happen is that when it rains, the sides collapse and people die. Yeah. And often it's children who are down in there. And, and yet the world of mobile phones and electronics looks so shiny and bright and modern and new, you wouldn't think that the acquisition of raw materials would involve child labor, uh, armed militias fighting over who has control over this bit of territory or that bit of territory. 
the, the, the miners who have left their fields because they can make quick money, like, like the Klondike, like a gold rush, um, have, have, so fields have been left untended because you can get rich quick if you go into the forest and, and there's no, no food in the forest. So the mine organizers hire hunters to go out and kill animals. Doesn't matter what species, the bigger the better. Elephants, buffalo, antelope, gorillas, chimpanzees, large-bodied mammals all get into the, 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 the cooking pot of the miners who are doing hard physical labor. Basically, it's lump hammer and chisels and adzes. And, you know, it's not when you think of a 21st century mine, you're probably thinking of, of machinery and, and right. carefully controlled and environmental regulations. That wasn't happening. So, yes, um, there was a, a real problem and, and gor gorillas, which are the species that are, and, and forest elephants, the two species I, I'm most involved with, were being um, killed and, and converted into food for miners to dig out tantalum so that we can all have a games console or a, a smartphone. And you would think that these globally dominant and important and very wealthy industries would just put a bit of investment into, okay, let's, let's train the miners so that they don't have collapses every time there's a heavy rainstorm and, and it's done safely and within environmental regulations so that the forest isn't destroyed in the process. And, and if men are working hard, and well, you don't want the kids working hard, you want them in school, but if you can get them out of the mine into school when they grow up, if they want to be a miner, you want them to have de decent working conditions, uh, safety regulations, decent pay, all the kind of infrastructure that we in the developed world would want. And yet the profits from these mines were going to basically armed bandits, gangs who, who would fight each other and anyone else for control of this flow of riches. And once the ore of tantalum, which in this part of the world is Columba, Columba tantalite or coltan, um, I, I, I wrote a, a report in, in what was it, 2001 called um, Coltan Boom Gorilla Bust, because it was a boom and bust society. And although there has been some improvement over the past 20 years, uh, you still can't be 100% certain that when you buy a device, your tantalum has come from a regulated mine with all the necessary safety protocols and decent working conditions for the miners and so on, or some gang of bad guys with guns who, who live by terrorizing communities and forcing them to work down holes in the ground. Why not? You know, we're, we're an intelligent species, supposedly. You'd think that in all these UN meetings, they could come up with a system that enables you to distinguish between the two. And, and like, like you have with timber now, if you want to buy wood for your, your window frames or, or paper for your toilet or your um, fax machine, or your, not fax machine, a printer, your printer. Yeah, they don't use <laughs> Some people still use fax. Anyway, of course we do. Whatever office, whatever office paper you use, you would presumably seek to buy it from a well-managed forest. Sure. And, and the, the best known perhaps certification scheme is the FSC, the Forest Stewardship Council. And FSC, if, if you see that on a product, it tells you it's got a little tick with it, turns into a tree, the tick tree. Oh, yeah. It tells you the FSC has certified that this, this paper or this wood um, whether you're buying a wooden spoon or, or replacing all the windows in your house, you want the wood to come from a sustainable source 
and not be paying for bad guys with guns to kill wildlife to feed loggers who are cutting down valuable ancient forests that have a much more important role today to sequester and store carbon and prevent dangerous climate change. Those are all the sort of the issues that are interlinked. And I guess what people perhaps don't recognize is that every day, wherever you live in the world, in North America, in Europe, in Japan, or China, or South Africa, or Australia, um, your weather is influenced by the three tropical forest blocks, Amazonia, Congo Basin, the Southeast Asian forested islands, Borneo, Sumatra, Peninsula, Malaysia, and so on. And I don't normally give homework on these things, but, but go to your favorite search engine, which I suggest should be Ecosia, because when you search on Ecosia, you're paying to plant trees. Other search engines are available, but I like Ecosia. So you go to Ecosia and you type in T341 rain. T341 rain, top of the list will be an animated map of global precipitation, rainfall, snow, mist drizzle, and it's speeded up so that a whole year is in a couple of minutes, which, which means the days, there's a little counter for the days whizzing by. Those are um, basically a day a second. Wow. And, and when you see the world like that, the rainfall, which they show on this map is a sort of orange color to differentiate from the white, which is water vapor, which when it isn't condensing to make a cloud, you can't see, so it's invisible. So you're gonna show it, okay, let's, water vapor is white, and you see these rivers in the sky. We don't see them, they're happening right above our heads. We see them when the water starts to condense and you get clouds, oh yes, there's, there's water in the sky and it falls as rain. Most people don't think, well, how does it get into the sky? <laughs> turns out that a significant proportion of the, the water vapor that is put into the sky is put into the sky by forests, and in particular tropical rainforests. And they're called rainforests, of course, because it rains a lot. But what, again, people don't think is, well, the, the rainforest actually generates the rain. So the trees are, are absorbing water through the roots and up through the, the, the vascular tissue and out of the leaves where it, the transpiration uh, puts water vapor into the atmosphere. The trees also release uh, volatile organic compounds, chemicals that act as little seeding points. So the water vapor tends to coalesce around these molecules of volatile organic compounds, and that starts the rain coming. And so the, the, you can see on this map that the daily rain looks like the pumping of a global heart. Mm. Amazonia, Congo Basin, Southeast Asia, Amazonia, it's like three ventricles of a heart pumping, and it's pumping water around the world, but it's actually receiving rain. But the, the, the weather systems that, that build up of the tropical forests are then carried around. So, so if, if you're in the Midwest, in the Corn Belt, the rain, it's, it's coming from the Amazon. But what I didn't know until I saw this map, this, this animation, was that the Amazon receives rain from the Congo and from West Africa that crosses the Atlantic, you can watch the weather systems move around the world and you think, okay, you know, if you like your wine from California or from Chile or from South Africa or New Zealand or France, you can look at where the vineyards are and trace back this movement of water. So, okay, protect the Amazon basin to protect the South African vineyards, if you like South African wines. And then actually the weather systems sweep across to Australia and New Zealand. 
So the Amazon basin is really important if you're a wine lover who drinks those wines. Um, bouncing off the, the, the um, Andes and swooping across the Atlantic from, from North America to Europe to water the vineyards in, in Spain and Portugal and Italy and France um, is, is rain in that big cycle. But when you buy a bottle of wine, not a penny of the price goes to pay to protect the pump that waters the vineyards. Why is that? Because we just think that's, that's for free. And, and so the, the living forest that plays that role in all of our lives, we all benefit from that. And not, not just wine, obviously a loaf of bread, whatever you're buying, it's been grown in fields that have been watered by rain, which you can trace the weather system back to these tropical forests. And my colleagues in, in Oxford at the Global Canopy Programme estimate that a unit area with a square mile, a square kilometre of, of rainforest is putting eight to 10 times more water vapour into the atmosphere than the same unit area of ocean. Of course, there's a lot more ocean, but this focus activity generates the, the weather systems, which we then watch sweeping around the world. So there's a very direct benefit that I would say anyone, wherever you live in the world, in, in Paris or um, New York or Alabama, <laughs> um, you, you owe a debt to gorillas, right? The one peering over my shoulder. Uh, why, why gorillas? Why elephants? Why, why tapirs or spider monkeys? What do they do for me? Well, they eat fruit and they swallow seeds. And the next day or the day after, they poop. And the seeds which have passed through the digestive system are then ready to germinate. And what does a seed need? We're talking about gardening again. You know, if, if you're going to plant a seed, it needs, it needs water, it needs nutrients, and it needs light. Right. Well, rainforests have a very dense canopy. But when elephants are feeding, they often break off branches or push over trees, and that creates a little light gap. When gorillas or orangutans build nests, they, they fold branches in, and it's like folding an umbrella. They build a sleeping platform. But where those leaves were all spread out, catching light, now they're tucked into a ball that creates a light gap. What does an ape do in the morning when it gets up? It, it mm, evacuates its bowel. And yesterday's fruit seeds are, are passed in a pile of poop. And, and we'll talk a lot about dung during this conversation because okay. dung is what makes the world go round. Um, I could qu quote Donald Rumsfeld, shit <laughs> happens. And, and it does. But people think that's a bad thing, but actually, no, it's really important for ecosystems. So the seeds land in a, in a packet of fertilizer, the dung, which decomposes and forms compost. They've got nutrients. They're under a nest, which is a, a, like a folded umbrella. So there's a light gap. So there's more sunlight coming down. And best of all, they're miles from the parent plant because they've been carried there in the stomach of the ape or the elephant or whatever the, the frugivore is. And, and small seeds can be carried by birds. And we all know about you know, bird poop sometimes producing a plant. Um, but big seeds need big animals. And the biggest animals, elephants, disperse seeds of trees which have no other seed dispersal agent. So you lose the elephants, you lose those trees. All the insects that particularly feed on that tree, they're gonna go too. And so you see this sort of chain reaction of you take out one important species like an elephant, an ape, or, or again in Latin America, a, a tapir or a spider monkey. Um, and all the species that were ecologically dependent on that 
will disappear over time, or they'll certainly decline. They might get by, but they won't thrive. We're talking about thriving ecosystems. So I would argue that we all owe a debt to the animals in the forest. And, and I, I like to use the term gardeners of the forest. But if you look up hashtag gardeners of the forest, you'll find articles and, and um, talks uh, and papers and social media posts because we want people to understand. You know, they, they think, well, why should we protect elephants? Well, if we save up and, and go on a safari holiday, we might get to see elephants in the wild. But that's not a reason for protecting them. I mean, that's a nice thing to do if you can afford it. Um, but they're not there for our pleasure to go and look at. It is a pleasure to go and look at them. And, and I, I like to use um, Scotch whiskey as a, an example of that. What do, what do I mean there? Well, I don't know if you like single malt whiskies. Um, so many distilleries in different parts of Scotland with different geology and different um, peat or, or producing different flavors of single malts. So many distilleries, so little time. <laughs> you have to get around them all and sample them. And that's become something of a tourist thing. Tourists who go to Scotland, visit distilleries, big copper stills. They're fascinating to look around. But the, although they are attractive to tourists, that's not what they're for. They're not a tourist attraction built to attract tourists. They're there to make whiskey. And what people seem to forget is that, that elephants are not there to go and see on holiday or to have photographs and documentaries to show on our TVs, all of which are good things to do. I, I love watching documentaries and they can explain a lot to the world. But we haven't previously valued what animals do. It's like they're just ornaments. And my argument is that animals are not, I mean, they are sometimes ornamental in that they're beautiful and they inspire us and we paint them and photograph them and want to share those images with our friends and they're equally inspired and think, oh, you're so lucky you saw an elephant on holiday. That's all great. But don't forget what elephants do for the ecosystem and, and other species. And if you like marine wildlife, whales are particularly important at this. Uh, why? Because whales produce, and, and it's a lovely phrase, they produce fecal plumes. Yes, that is nice sounding. Big plumes of particulate matter, which is poo. So whale poo comes out in, in, in like a cloud. And these so-called fecal plumes are really important in marine ecology. Because like elephant dung and primate dung fertilizes the trees, whale poo fertilizes the phytoplankton, the little organisms that photosynthesize light and take in much of the CO2 and produce about 50% of the world's oxygen. Wow. So as my good friend, Ralph Sharmi likes to say, every other breath, thank the phytoplankton. Who fertilizes the phytoplankton? The great whales, the marine mammals. And yet we don't value that. So, so I mentioned Ralph, uh, he, his day job is, is assistant director of the International Monetary Fund. So he's quite a respected economist. And I've never had much truck with economists. I didn't do eco economics at school. And, and I learned later why it was so alien to me, because when you go and study economics, your professor will tell you that, that nature is an externality. We've, we've invented this wonderful economy where we buy and sell stuff and use money and all have a better life as a result of it. And that any impact that has on nature is, is external to the importance of the economy and our societies and, and our, our governments and our, our corporations all work on that basis 
that you know nature's nice if you, if you can protect it in nature that'd be lovely but the really important thing is to make profits and and um, give a good return to our shareholders that's what our laws require companies to do rather than require them to operate in a sustainable way so that our children and grandchildren have a decent chance of living on a healthy planet too and that's beginning to change you know the, the un for all the criticisms you can throw at it for being big and complicated and not as effective as you might wish um, and that's partly because it, it, it isn't doesn't have executive power can't tell a country what to do it's an agreement between countries to do something and if somebody doesn't do it what's the penalty you know peer pressure helps a bit but if the profit's big enough then peer pressure isn't enough the profits will win so what ralph has proposed and he's recently published it um, in, in highly respected journals he and his colleagues have come up with a new economic paradigm which sounds like the most boring phrase you could think of but <laughs> it is actually going to um, change the global economy if, if we are successful in getting it out and, and into use. Oh, I'm doing a lot of talking. I said, you asked me one it's question. It's okay. I actually really enjoyed that conversation where you were doing most of the talking because, <laughs> no, really, it gave me an opportunity. I did not know many of the things that you that you threw at me. That applies to many of your listeners who, who will think, wow, that's great. That's a good reason to protect these species. 